Volume 2, Chapter 10 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mawit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 10 We'll gather up fresh roses for you soon. Oh, that they could be given by smiles or tears, but smiles are fruitless sunshine, tears cold rain. Blanche of Navarre From the same to the same, March 2nd. Breakfast was hardly over this morning when Ellen and I, both eager to hear of our unknown patient's convalescence, proposed to clear away the service ourselves, and dispatched Netta with a bowl of gruel to her mother. Netta remained absent so long that our little pupils arrived before she returned, and we were obliged to commence our school duties. I blush to confess it, but I hardly know what chapter in the Bible I read, for once our Saviour's beautiful and spirit-moving prayer was repeated with my lips alone, and its deep spiritual meanings unremembered. Ellen was sitting at her desk, with a coloured alphabet in her hand. Beside her stood little Annie, listening with her roguish eyes upturned as Ellen explained the positive difference between the letters M and N. I, with a spelling book before me, was as diligently but less successfully employed in endeavouring to impress Miss Alexina Serafina and little Susan with some faint idea of orthography. Before the children had made any decided progress in the acquisition of knowledge, we were interrupted by the entrance of Netta. She ran up to Ellen without ceremony, exclaiming, I couldn't help it. I couldn't come before. Mother kept me talking. She was in a great taking on, dear Miss Ellen, and don't know at all what to do, for she says it is the strangest thing that ever happened to her. What is the strangest thing? Tell us what, Netta, replied Ellen with undisguised anxiety. Why, the poor sick woman! Why, you see! Quick, quick, what of her? Tell me quickly, Netta, said Ellen hurriedly. Why, she's clean gone, answered the child. Not dead, oh, not dead, murmured Ellen. No, no, she's gone away. Mother don't know where, nor when she went, nor anything about it, only that she's clean gone. How strange, said Ellen, turning to me, for I had forsaken my post and approached the instant I saw her agitation. When does your mother think that she had left? questioned I of Netta. Mother says that last night the poor thing seemed a great sight better after she had taken the wine, and then she said she could go to sleep, and turned over on the pillow, and so mother left her as quiet as could be, and this morning there wasn't no noise in the room, so mother thought she might be sleeping yet, 
and wouldn't disturb her. Then when Billy came in for his breakfast, for he don't get it until after he's been out a couple of hours or so, he made a racket to raise all out of doors. So mother thought the woman must be awake, and she went in to see her. And the bed was just empty, and there wasn't anybody in the room at all. But there was some silver laying on the washstand. So mother looked about and called out, but nobody answered, for the woman was gone. Mother was dreadful grieved about her, for she paid good board and wasn't a bit able to take care of herself. Netta had given us all the information in her power, and I thought it best to dismiss her, in spite of the questions which hovered on Ellen's lips, and which the child would have spent half the day in answering. It was necessary that we should return to our school duties, and I set the example to my young associate. But the day was a heavy one and to Ellen more than heavy, sad. Yet she had no sufficient cause for her dejection. It was her turn to open the book of prints, and she selected an engraving representing different species of ants. But she was in no mood to do justice to the wonderful history of this interesting little insect, and I smilingly took the book from her passive hands. Susan and Annie and even Miss Alexina Serafina, were soon standing motionless at my knees, and, with open mouths, wandering eyes, gazing in my face, and listening to the singular narration. Do the big white ants really have little black negro slaves? inquired Susan. And do they really fight great battles and take prisoners and all that? What did they give the wee ones to eat? asked Annie. I answered their questions and looked inquiringly towards Miss Alexina, in hope that she would also invince her interest by some appropriate query, but she pouted her lips at my glance and remained silent. Ellen was relieved when school hours were over, and I hardly less so. Mr. Willard conversed very animatedly at the dinner-table about his new occupation, and I was beginning to be enlivened by his mirth when Netta entered and said, "'Billy's here, and wants to speak to Miss Ellen.' Ellen rose, and I involuntarily rose and accompanied her into the entry. Billy was leaning against the wall, with a huge bundle of books beneath one arm, and a package of newspapers under the other. "'I told Mother,' began he, as soon as he saw Ellen, "'that it were worth a good licking to me if I get up as far as this.' "'for there is not much to be done in the way of selling book in these parts. "'But she said it was going to oblige you, so here goes,' says I, "'and I come up like a shot.' "'What message did your mother send?' said Ellen. "'Well, and that's more than I can say,' answered Billy, scratching his head. "'For it's gone clear out of my head. "'I only know it was something about the poor woman at our house, "'and you're coming to look after her.' "'Has she returned, then?' inquired I. "'Not as I know of, for I never heard tell that she was gone. "'But she's there now.' "'Is she? 
Oh, thank you for bringing me word, Billy. I shall remember you for this, said Ellen. That's all, cried Billy, retreating towards the door. I had advanced to say a word to him, but he nodded his head and, putting his thumb to his nose as he noticed my movement, bellowed out, Mark's well, Mark's well, never fear. I knew it was he you were going to ask about. Mark's thriving like a potato patch. And the little peripatetic vendor of literary wares disappeared. Let us go instantly, said Ellen. You will accompany me, will you not? Yes, although I do not think Billy's message a very lucid one, and it is possible that he may have made some mistake about the return of the woman. Do not, I entreat you, make such a suggestion, replied Ellen. I feel so deeply interested in that unfortunate creature. How bitterly she sobbed! And did you notice how small and slender and almost fleshless her hands were? Mr. and Mrs. Willard, who have a singular and mutual aversion to a tete-a-tete -tete with each other, objected to our sudden departure. But we silenced the former by assuring him that we had been sent for to see a very sick person. And Mrs. Willard's opposition has lost all weight, for she makes it a rule to find fault with our actions. And now, now how shall I relate to you the thrilling scene which ensued, when Ellen and I once more found ourselves in Nancy's little shop? The poor creature's back again, said Nancy, addressing us. It was myself that met her, not a stone throws off, reeling along and catching hold of the lamp-post to keep upon her feet. She was trying to get back here, but couldn't. Just as I come up, every drop of strength went out of her, and she fell down plump upon the stones like a log. And I lifted her up in my two arms, for she isn't as weighty as a bag of feathers, and carried her into the house, and put her on her own bed, and there she's been ever since. I'd have sent you word three hours ago, for the creature looked every blessed minute as if she was going off, but I hadn't sold to send until Billy, the darling, came home to his dinner. Thank you. Thank you for sending, said Ellen hastily. But now let us see her. Shall we go right in? Sure, sure and you may, for I don't think she'll need you or anybody else, for she's clean out of her wits and don't seem to notice nobody at all at all. While the woman was speaking, Ellen had pushed open the chamber door, and I followed her into the room. The unfortunate invalid was stretched upon the outside of the bed, the fragile form enveloped in an old shawl. She was attired in the tattered black dress which we had seen before hanging beside the cot. She appeared to be sleeping. Her face was turned towards the wall, and partly concealed by her attenuated hands. The instant we entered, my eyes rested upon an infant's small, rose-coloured slipper, which lay at the foot of the cot. Ellen's glance followed mine, and springing forward with a wild cry, she caught up the slipper and sank upon her knees beside the bed. 
the slumbering sufferer was aroused. Flinging out her feeble arms, she slowly turned her face towards us. One look, one fleeting look of mingled joy, surprise, and horror. But no, I could not believe my eyes, although glancing from the appalling object before them, they beheld the kneeling Ellen, with her clasped hands raised to heaven, as she fervently ejaculated, Merciful God, I thank thee. I turned to the beautiful wreck that lay extended upon the rude cot. Like one in a dream, I took those small and burning hands into my own. I looked long and with bewildered earnestness in that too lovely and, ah, too sadly altered face. Was it, could it be, the lost, the mourned, our own idolized Evelyn? Oh, my sister! "'Mine own dear sister, have we found you at last?' exclaimed Ellen, encircling the unconscious invalid with her arms, while tears at once of rapture and of anguish chased each other down her cheeks. But even these words could not at that moment arouse me, for I was stupefied with wonder and horror. I could not turn my eyes away, they were transfixed, as by some spell, upon that beloved and familiar countenance. Yet the face had its perfect oval, the features were pinged and thin, and the chiseled lips more sculpture-like now that they were colorless. The redundant tresses had been severed from the head, but the hair still curled in short round circles about that pale forehead, and ah, the eyes, those superb eyes, there was the saddest change. I had so often beheld them beaming with the radiant light of joy, and now they were hollow, glossy, and their expression had all the wildness of insanity. Evelyn, sister, do you not know me? Only speak to me one word, said Ellen imploringly. Evelyn gazed with a vacant look from Ellen to me, and from me to Ellen again. She evidently did not recognize us, and Ellen's words fell upon an unconscious ear. In another moment, Evelyn's wandering gaze rested upon the little pink shoe which Ellen held. A heavenly smile illuminated the sufferer's countenance. She stretched out her hand for the token, which Ellen gently resigned. Lilla, mine own, my beautiful angel, ah, you have come again. I thought you would come no more. Lie here, lie there, from paradise, stolen away to lie down beside me. Wretched, yes. Her utterance was impeded. Ellen wept so violently that I forced her from the bedside and treated her to compose herself. When we returned to the cot, Evelyn's mood had changed. She hid her face in the sheet as we reproached and cried out, They shall not see me. They shall not. I will hide, hide, 
till the kind earth itself hides me, and they heap it in a mound upon my poor, aching breast. That was Miss Catherine's voice. And there is Ellen. Oh, I know them, but they shall not see me, for it would kill them both, and Walter too. But he is dead already, and I dare not die, lest I should meet them. That would be too horrible. Evelyn, Evelyn, we know you. We love you as tenderly as ever. We always shall love you. Look up, my own sister, look up and speak to us. Ellen, as she said these words, drew the covering from her sister's face. Evelyn made no resistance, and though she gazed at us with apparent calmness, we were still unrecognized. We have no time to lose, Ellen, whispered I. We must send for medical aid. Yes, yes, that we must, and quickly. And pray send for Walter, and for mother and father at the same time. Ill as she is, it will be so much joy to them to know that we have found her. Oh, if she only recovers, we may all be so happy again. Send for Walter first, but prepare him well, or he may lose his reason from very rapture. I almost think mine is going. We had better not summon them yet. Not quite yet, I replied, at a loss how to account for my reluctance to concede to her wishes. A physician is the most important person. True, we will send for Dr. R., and why not for Walter at the same time? Good news should travel like lightning. But, Ellen, yield to me in this, dear Ellen. I have my reasons for not sending for either Dr. R. or for Walter, and I will explain them to you by and by. Dr. Wesley is an excellent physician, and he is not acquainted with Evelyn or with you, although he is known to me for some years. We will send for him. I did not wait to obtain Ellen's consent, but re-entering the shop, dispatched Nancy to the nearest grocer's for some paper. She soon returned with a soiled and crumpled sheet, upon which I scrawled with my pencil a few lines to Dr. Wesley. The note dispatched by Nancy, I returned to the chamber where Ellen was supporting her newly found sister in her arms weeping over her, and kissing the white forehead that rested upon her own shoulder. I immediately suggested that we should disrobe Evelyn and place her more comfortably on the bed. She was so light that I easily lifted her in my arms, and she was soon disencumbered of her somber dress. Her undergarments were worn and made of coarse materials, but on searching the room we could not discover that she possessed any other supply. I placed her upon a chair, supported by Ellen, while I essayed to render the wretched bed more comfortable. But the mattress was made of straw, and the pillows were small and hard, and these, these were to hold the delicate limbs of the tenderly nurtured Evelyn. We hardly laid her in the bed and removed the blanket from Nancy's own cot to afford Evelyn sufficient covering when Nancy herself returned, 
accompanied by Dr. Wesley. Dr. Wesley greeted me without evincing any surprise. He evidently thought that he had been summoned to visit an ordinary patient, and one belonging to the class which he was likely to find in such a dwelling. But Evelyn's appearance could not be mistaken. The marks of gentle blood were too many and undisguisable. The doctor saw at a glance that some strange accident must have thrown her in her present situation. But he had too much professional discreetness to be inquisitive. "'She will certainly recover, doctor, will she not?' inquired Ellen anxiously, as Dr. Wesley felt Evelyn's pulse. "'I hope so,' replied the doctor, but I fancy that he spoke in no encouraging tone. "'Do you think that she has lost her reason?' I ventured to ask. No, I think not, was the gratifying reply. She is merely delirious from the effects of fever, and it can be overcome. I have no doubt that her mind will be perfectly restored. This was joyful intelligence, for which both Ellen and I warmly breathed our thanks. Dr. Wesley wrote a prescription, recommended that the patient should be given some cool, refreshing drink as often as she thirsted, and left us, promising to call again the next morning. "'We must not leave her, Miss Catherine,' said Ellen, when the doctor was gone. "'We must remain here all night. And had you not better send for mother?' I reflected a few moments, and then replied, "'I think it best, Ellen, not at present to mention that we have discovered Evelyn's retreat. Best for many reasons.' She cannot now bear a removal to more commodious lodgings, and the presence of her parents and husband cannot do her any good. Then, her history. Perhaps she would like to recount what has occurred to us. That is, perhaps, at all events, I am convinced, it would be better for us to nurse her in secret, and when she recovers, then... "'Then we shall all be so happy again,' exclaimed Ellen, interrupting me. "'If heaven so please.' "'But where are you going?' demanded she, as I took up my hat. "'I must return home, but I will be with you again shortly. "'I sent Nancy to procure me a cab, for it was already too dark for me to walk home, "'and giving one more look at Evelyn's dear face.' bade her sister adieu. At home I found Mrs. Willard's in the fidgets at our absence, when I informed her that the person whom Ellen went to see was so ill that one of us, at least, must remain with her all night, she angrily expressed her discontent, and asked what was to become of our school if we intended to hire ourselves out as hospital nurses for all the paupers in the city. I replied that our pupils should not be neglected, and left her railing at the folly of poor folks pretending to charity. After preparing a large pitcherful of tamarind water, which is a most grateful beverage in cases of fever, I tied a pair of linen sheets, a couple of pillows, and of blankets, a white wrapper of my own, and an ample supply of undergarments in one large bundle. Then, calling Netta, with her assistance, carried the bundle to the street door. The cab had not been dismissed. 
and the bundle was placed upon the front seat. I then went into the kitchen to see Blanche, who was preparing tea with more activity than usual, gave a few necessary directions to Netta, and taking the pitcher in one hand and a paper of biscuits in the other, re-entered the cab, and twenty minutes more brought me to Nancy's door. Ellen did not expect to see me so soon, and when I opened the door, I found her in the attitude of prayer, pouring forth the thanks of a grateful heart, and supplicating heaven to perfect our happiness by restoring her sister to health. Ellen rose at the sound of my step and said, Move gently, I think she sleeps. But she was in error. Evelyn was lying with her eyes open, though she was composed and silent. The pillows I had brought were placed beneath her head and shoulders, and as she made no objections to this, I lifted her once more in my arms, while Ellen hastily spread the linen sheets and blankets on the bed. I was unwilling to disturb the sufferer more than possible, yet I knew that fresh garments were so conducive not only to the comfort but to the positive restoration of an invalid, that with Ellen's assistance her sister was soon robed in the clothes that I had brought. When we replaced her in the bed, she drank with avidity a glass of the tamarind water, and soon fell into a sort of half-sleep. The night had grown cold, and it commenced to rain, and the piercing wind that shook the windows made us feel cheerless. Billy was in the shop counting his day's earning by the light of a dim tallow candle, and I dispatched him for a small quantity of wood, sperm candles, and a piper of tea. The active little fellow was not many minutes absent, and on his lighted one of the candles and kindled a fire in Evelyn's chamber, while I took possession of the broken teapot which was standing on the table. Fortunately, the kettle over the fire contained boiling water, and I had soon the happiness of carrying Ellen a refreshing bowl of tea, with the biscuits which I had brought on purpose for her. She at first refused to partake of any food, for her heart was too full, but when I whispered, You must take care of yourself, Ellen, or you will not long have the strength to nurse your beloved patient, she drank of the tea and forced herself to eat a couple of the biscuits. The light from the blazing logs lit up the little room, and as it fell upon Evelyn's face, showing a smile playing about her lips, our hearts grew warm and hopeful. Ellen embraced me, murmuring, She is found. Is that not a joy? She will recover soon. We shall be so happy. And my heart echoed the hopes of hers. It is now time for me to leave her, for I knew if I hoped to be able to watch beside Ellen on the next night and relieve her sister, I must seek rest. Bidding Ellen a hasty adieu, and Evelyn not a less tender, but a silent one, I re-entered the cab and returned home. Once more in my own chamber, prudence dictated that I should instantly seek my couch, but I knew that I could not sleep until I had wearied myself and unburdened my heart by writing you. I am surprised at my own self-possession throughout this eventful day. It seems to me as though I had not repressed merely, but postponed the indulgence of my feelings. 
I dare not give way to them, lest I should be unfitted for action, and there is much, oh, how much for me to perform. March 4th. My letter has become a diary, and as such I will render it a faithful one. But let me forewarn you that I have only time hastily to note events, not to remark upon them. I leave you to draw conclusions, for my mind is wholly engrossed with the actual occurrences. Yesterday morning my toilette was made by candlelight. On its completion I awoke Netta and told her that I was going to her mother's, but would return before breakfast. The affectionate little creature begged that I would bring Miss Ellen home with me, for she said she knew that she was badly off where she was, and wouldn't have a decent thing to eat or drink. I assured her that Ellen's wants should be supplied, and that she would return home very shortly. The storm still raged, and the keen march wind would, at that early hour, have given me an ague fit, had not excitement imparted a degree of warmth at once to my mind and physical frame. I stole noiselessly from the house for fear of awaking Mrs. Willard. Protected from the wet and the beating rain by India rubber shoes and a huge umbrella, I took my way to the cars for my purse will not afford me the indulgence of a cab any oftener than is absolutely necessary. I was so early that the first morning car had not started when I arrived. I was obliged to wait a tedious half-hour in the office, subjected to the rude gaze of the sleepy drivers and the inquisitive glances of the conductors. At last the horses were attached, and the conductor handed me into an empty car. I took my seat beside the little stove, and its warmth reanimated me. At any other time, the anthracite coal which they burn in these stoves would have been unendurable. It was scarcely light when I stepped from the cars, but the rain had almost ceased, and I had only a short distance to walk before I was at Nancy's door. She was arranging the various articles in her shop when I entered, and Dan was trying to kindle a fire with some moist wood which obstinately refused to burn, but persisted in smoking. I interfered with his labours, lest the smoke should injure Evelyn, and gave him money to procure some suitable fuel. I could not wait to listen to Nancy's hopes, fears, and apologies for not doing better by Miss Ellen, but escaping her volubility, entered the sick chamber. Ellen was sitting beside the bed, with her head leaning upon her hand, and her mild, loving eyes fixed upon her sister. Those eyes were not heavy, nor did Ellen's face betoken any weariness. Evelyn lay with her hands clasped upon her bosom, and I noticed the little pink shoe peeping out between those snowy fingers. Her eyes were still open, but their wondering gaze and the brilliant spot on each cheek proclaimed that her fever had not abated. Ellen started on seeing me, and said, Is it so late, or are you here very early? It is quite early, I replied, but I fear, my sweet Ellen, that you have had a wretched night. Wretched? Oh, no, I could not be wretched when I remembered that I was sitting beside Evelyn. 
Evelyn, who I had longed and prayed once more to behold, even for a moment. The night has been short, and yet it seems to me as if I lived over my whole past life since I last saw you. Every action, almost every thought, has risen before me as distinctly as though I had viewed it in a magic glass. What a different being I am from what I was when you first knew me. How much happier I am, even in the midst of a trial. How much I owe to you. Your five talents have indeed brought forth ten, Ellen. But you owe this good work, not to the instrument by which it was wrought, but to the artificer whose gracious hand guided the instrument, not to me, but to heaven. But how is Evelyn? Has she slept? Not much. And she has talked very incoherently. She appears to be quiet now, but she does not yet recognize me. I shall make a very short stay now, Ellen, for our little school must not be neglected. I will be with you again in the afternoon, and then you must give up your seat at Evelyn's side to me. Tonight I must watch by her. No, no, indeed, Miss Catherine, you must not ask me to do that. I am not in the least wearied. I could not endure to trust my poor sister even to your care. But, Ellen, it is absolutely necessary that you should seek rest. True affection, that is wise affection, requires of you some self-denial. Tomorrow morning you may again resume the duties of nurse, and I will attend to the school throughout the day. After some further persuasion, Ellen yielded, although unwillingly, to my request. It was time for me to leave, but I could not tear myself away without parting the rich locks from Evelyn's forehead and imprinting a kiss upon her hot brow. She sighed gently at the touch of my lips, and for a moment her features contracted with a painful expression. It passed away, and left them more mournful in their composure than I had before beheld them. While I was standing in the outer chamber giving Nancy a few directions about the food which she was to prepare for Ellen, Billy made his appearance. He threw down his oil silk cap, and, shaking water from a jacket of the same material, carefully laid on a bench a large bundle of books, wrapped in their waterproof covering. Without noticing me, he greedily seized upon a bowl of bread and milk, which stood ready for him upon the table. "'Are you out as early as this, Billy?' said I, nodding as I passed his chair. "'Well, now, you don't say. That bean't you, is it? Do tell, as the Yankee Doodles say. Have you been selling books at this hour?' "'Well, that's a rum question, to be sure. What else should I be doing out in all this here driving rain?' I guess I've seen two steamboats off, and I reckon I've sold a bigger heap of books than you'd read in a month. Here, hold on, hold on a moment, shouted he, perceiving that I was opening an umbrella preparatory to my departure. Let me show you. Perhaps you'd be a after buying a book or two. He seized hold of my dress and dipped his spoon in the milk, stuffed a huge chunk of bread in his mouth, and before I could prevent him, he had unrolled the leather package and was kneeling down in front of an armful of books. 
He selected them out, one by one, and held them up before my eyes, always accompanying the action with an appropriate critical eulogiums upon the work, for young gentlemen of his profession are often far better acquainted with the merits of the author than those to whom the books are sold. New novel, just out. Rose de Albert by James, James first-rate writer, price one shilling. The Rose of Thistle Island, just out. Roses all the go. Sketches of American Society by Seatsville, very good indeed, and lots of fun, all for a shilling. Thank you, thank you, Billy. I don't want to buy any books this morning. Oh, none of your nonsense, just hold on a minute. I haven't showed you my best ones yet. Here, here. Here's one of the American authors. Mirror Library, Sacred Songs by N.P. Willis. Number six, first rate. He's the boy for the ladies. Just read what he says about himself on the cover. No coming up to him. Hard to beat. Price one shilling. I shook my head and tried to retreat towards the door. But Billy again caught hold of my dress, determined not to lose a customer. You haven't seen half yet. Just make yourself easy a second, will you? Here's The Rover by Seba Smith, editor. He's the genuine Jack Downing man from down east. He's a tall writer, I can tell you. No mistake. Only a sixpenny, miss. Cost next door to nothing. Better buy. Lots of funny reading. All for a sixpence. I could only purchase my liberty from the pertinaciously little book vendor by handing him a sixpenny piece and carrying the rover with me. While he was pocketing the money, I turned and made my escape. Breakfast was on the table before I reached home, and Mrs. Willard had taken my usual seat in front of the urn. "'These are strange doings of yours and Ellen,' she began. "'I hope we shall see the end of them soon, for the whole house is kept in perpetual confusion, and I am sure I do not see how we are going to get along unless you make more headway with your school,' answered her gently, in the hope that a mild answer would turn away wrath. But I only threw oil upon the fire, and was perforce obliged to eat my breakfast well seasoned with the cayenne of her complaints. Nine o'clock had struck, and my little pupils were raising an uproar in the schoolroom before I made my appearance among them. During the day I made a great effort to concentrate my mind upon my occupation, that I might do justice to the children, and I trust that I partially succeeded but how could I see Ellen's empty chair and prevent my thoughts from wandering to the bedside of her insensible sister? And how could I still the throbbings of my heart when I remembered that perhaps that sister, once more restored to health and happiness, would again grace her now deserted home, would rejoice and relighten the oppressed heart of her forsaken husband, the school was dismissed, and dinner was over, and with a light step I sought my chamber and prepared myself to join Ellen. I had just laid my cloak, shawl, and fur tippet upon the bed when I was summoned to the presence of a visitor. In the parlour I found my old friend, Mrs. Ashburton, and her daughters, three well-bred and neatly attired young ladies, whom she presented to me as my future pupils. My little school had doubled itself in a day. This was encouraging. 
Mrs. Ashburton's visit was not short, for she delights to talk over the days of old Lang Syne, and found in me a seemingly patient listener. I smiled with ill-concealed pleasure when she rose and bade me good afternoon. Conducting her to the door, I was about to close it after her, when whom should I behold standing at the wicker gate of the courtyard but Mr. Merritt? This was the first visit that he had paid us, and many united causes rendered his presence agitating and unwelcome. I tried to veil my emotion by talking about our new residence, showing him the rooms, and conversing on indifferent subjects, but we were mutually embarrassed, and made some speeches much too ridiculous to bear repetition. I sent for Mrs. Willard, and her presence was a relief to both of us, for she commenced a detailed account of her grievances, which precluded the necessity of all other conversation. Mr. Merritt looked wretchedly, and had evidently paid us this visit because he feared that his absenting himself wholly from his wife's family might give rise to slanderous reports. I longed to mention Evelyn, to inspire him with the hope of beholding her again, but dared not, and her name is a forbidden word upon his lips. Fortunately, he refused Mrs. Willard's invitation to remain to tea, but it was so dark when I found myself at liberty that I was obliged to defer my visit until Mr. Willard returned from his employer's counting-room. Mrs. Willard would have opposed my departure, but I told her that I was going for Ellen, who would accompany her father home. To this she merely answered that it, it was high time. Ellen had grown somewhat anxious at my non-appearance, though she could not help rejoicing that the period during which she could remain with her sister was prolonged. A slight change had taken place in Evelyn, and Dr. Wesley assured Ellen that it was a favourable one. "'Your father is waiting, Ellen,' said I. "'You must hasten home.' "'Must I, indeed? You cannot think how I dread to leave her. I almost feel as though I should never behold her more, as though we should lose her again.' If any change for the worst takes place, I will send for you. Only hasten now, and in the morning I am to return. I assented, and Ellen, without daring to embrace her sister, lest she should waken her, joined Mr. Willard in the shop. I was left beside Evelyn's cot alone, yet not lonely, for my busy thoughts were all engrossing companions. Once or twice Nancy stole into the room to see if I needed her assistance, and to wonder at the poor creature in the bed, and to talk over her own domestic affairs. But by ten o'clock she and her children had sought repose. Evelyn continued to sleep, but her slumber was not calm, and when I, at intervals, bathed her lips and temples, she seemed conscious of my touch. The night appeared to be, as it had seemed to Ellen, almost too short. There was a charm in thus watching by the pillow of one whom we had mourned as dead. The eye could never weary of scanning those faultless features and marking the new beauties wrought by the most transient change of expression. Ellen was with me at dawn, and she looked far more haggard and fatigued after her night's rest 
than when, with wakeful eyes, she had watched beside her sister. Evelyn still slept. Ellen and I interchanged only a few whispered words, and I left her. She expects me again in the afternoon, for I have penned these lines at stolen intervals during school hours. In the dread of wearying you by too long a letter, I shall dispatch this without delay. I need not say, think of us, and pray for us, for you do both involuntarily. End of chapter 10